All right, let's dive right in. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for another beautiful day, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here. Open our eyes and our hearts and draw us closer to Thee. Help us to be better servants for You, whether it is in this ministry or whatever ministry You have called us to. Help us to discover our spiritual gifts and most importantly, dedicate them to the service of You and Your people. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we get started, a lot happened yesterday, a lot to digest, a lot of good stuff. That was the first time I'd heard Mac's presentation. I'm so looking forward to getting his eight-hour book. I mean, that's a lot of good stuff there, and it really segues into what we're talking about today. So after having 12 hours to digest, any questions, thoughts, comments before we jump into the next part? Okay, yeah, that's understandable because yesterday was a lot of just chunky information. Here's a bunch of facts and let's absorb them. Today we're going to go a slightly different direction. This morning we're going to spend some time on culture. Why does abuse happen? Now, we know the answer, short answer is sin. We know that uh, it was predicted in Genesis 3.16. That we always talk about Eve's curse, the first part being, you know, painful childbirth. The next part your desire shall be for him, and he shall overcome thee. Desire, in that sense, does not mean sexual, sensual desire. It means the desire to overcome, like in Psalm 91. Basically, what that meant was the root of violence against women is they had a real simple plan in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they had different roles. I'm not a radical feminist to say men and women are the same. We are not the same. God created us different. Does not mean we are not equal. We are different, and it has a lot more to do than with just our physical reproductive parts. But them and God was at the head. There were no power and control issues. They had a perfect relationship with God. There you go. There was no need for them to argue amongst themselves. They kicked God out of the Garden of Eden. They said, we don't need you, God. We've got this under control. We're going to do our own things, eat of the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and evil and all of that. And then who's in charge now? It, within the context of this relationship, anybody that's been on a church board, it's never good to have an even number of people because you need that tiebreaker. In the, even in the U.S. Constitution, if we're going to have two senators per state, we need someone with a tiebreaker, and that, of course, is the vice president in our country. I want to be in charge. No, I want to be in charge because we're selfish now. After the fall, I want to be in charge. No, I do. Adam being physically more powerful, would have been able to exercise power and control. Civilization springs forth from there. And that idea has already been set in. Women have been second-class citizens ever since. And men have basically, except for very small microcosms of the world, ruled over women. Short sermon on really what's happening about why we have violence against women in our world. But we're going to take bring it down North America, 2012. <laughs> whatever year it is in the modern day, we're going to look at the culture, how our culture basically indoctrinates young men and women to believe that abuse is normal. And some of the things are going to be obvious, some not so much. We want to spend a fair, time amount on, fair amount of time on that. Then I want to bring it home. I want to look at our church culture. And I mean, while we have different, you know, we're from all over the world, there's different pockets of culture, even within a given country. But overall, we can talk about our local church, look at North America or the world. 
what are some maybe cultural aspects within our church? Adventism is much a culture, as a subculture as it is, a movement as it is, a denomination as it is, a religious group. Kind of do some self-reflection on the church. Maybe what are the attitudes that we have that while not explicitly condoning such behavior, somewhat does by maybe turning a blind eye or just traditions and things like that. Spend a lot of time, like I said, on our young people and working with victims. Let's take all of this 12 hours of chunky knowledge. You're in your church, you're in your home, you're in wherever you are, you have a friend, parishioner, whatever, who needs help, what do you do, what do you don't do? This is where the rubber hits the road. We break for lunch, we come back. Katya talks about resilience. We tend to think of survivors as just brokeless, helpless, broken, helpless people. There may be stages where they're like that, but the human being is very, very resilient. How can we take faith, ministry, practical knowledge we can gain from psychology and sociology to help women discover, or survivors, whether they're women, children, or men, discover that strength to carry on and learn to respect that. Um, that's gonna be a big part of working with victims. We think we're supposed to fix everything, and that's the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. And then I will come in, we'll talk about perpetrators. You're on the church board. It's pretty much understood that a deacon is abusing somebody. What do we do at that point? We don't ask that question, and we don't do anything. Um, I've got some ideas I just want to throw across the table after that about how we can continue building out End It Now within the church from the global level all the way down to the local church. Um, a little bit of call to action, wrap up, and then we go back to wherever we're from and take this knowledge and change the world. So that's today in a nutshell. A lot going on. Um, we've been through the welcome. We don't have any new people, so we're comfortable with that. I went over the uh, agenda. We have a little more time today. There's a little more wiggle room in the schedule, so feel free to ask questions. If they get way bigger than a bread box, like let's discuss the intersection of third wave feminism and postmodern Christianity, I may have to table that one <laughs> because that, their whole college course is built around that. Um, just a quick reminder, domestic violence, systematic use of tactics to exercise power and control, physical as well as non-physical. I brought this slide up again because we're going to talk about the power and control wheel. Katia touched on it yesterday. We've got a video from Ellen Pence, a wonderful, insanely intelligent, but down-to-earth woman who was really critical in a critical part of creating that. And you'll hear her talk about tactics and power and control a lot. So I just wanted to bring that back up to the surface. I should have probably mentioned this yesterday, but I've got a couple sides I'll throw in. Myths about domestic violence, we probably still have them. We know that the average person does. We say that it only happens to poor and uneducated people. That is completely and totally not true. Um, there's a book, Dana's tired of hearing this line. She's heard this a probably 50 times in the last two years. That's on my list to read if I can ever get out of grad school and have time to read things other than textbooks. It's uh, 1999, I think he was a board member at Merrill Lynch, I mean, multi-billionaire type of guy. Killed his wife in a hotel room in um, Hong Kong. Obviously not poor, obviously not uneducated. Domestic violence nonetheless. 
and so we think it doesn't happen among religious groups. I'm sure that's a bullet point here shortly. We know we've discussed that a lot yesterday. We know that's not true. Here's a big one. A lot of judges still have this mistake or this mistaken belief. We believe that domestic violence is an anger management issue. He does not know how to control his anger. Do not sell me that. Why is it he can drive to work, maybe get cut off in traffic, not physically abuse anyone? Yeah, he may use some choice words and maybe one-fingered hand signals, but he's not abusing anyone. Has an argument with his boss. His boss comes down on Joe. Joe is my generic victim name, um, perpetrator name. Joe, you're doing this and you're not doing well, and you better get your sales numbers up or else we're going to have to let you go. Manage not to punch the boss in the nose. On the way home, maybe stops somewhere, meets his buddies for a drink or whatever. Manages not to get in any fights there. Stops on the way home from work, cashier messes up something, doesn't scan right, doesn't get the sale price or whatever, manages not to hit her. But then he comes home, and all of a sudden he has an anger management issue. No, <laughs> he's managing it, not in a healthy way, but he is still making choices. I'm going to use these tactics against this person at this time. That's not anger management. Now, if he is getting in fights and losing it with all of those other people, yeah, we can have the anger management discussion. Which is Mike wasn't so sensitive. <laughs> um, but that's less than 1% of the cases. He or she just lost control. It won't happen again. You hear that all the time. I hear it from perpetrators. The first thing they say is, well, I didn't do anything. Second is, that we put the power and control wheel in front of them. They're like, okay, I've done all these things, but she caused it by X, Y, Z. And then the next thing we get, so blaming the victim, then we get to, well, I just lost control. Of course, we're still absolving ourselves of responsibility. We'll talk about that this afternoon when we talk about what you can expect when talking with a perpetrator. We get through to um, batterers this way in group. I just lost control. It won't happen again. I have one very simple question. Where's the body? Hmm? I didn't kill anybody. You hit someone, didn't you? Police report says there was strangulation that um, bruises around the eyes and the back of the legs. You obviously were physically abusive. You were out of control. Where's the body? Well, I wouldn't go that far. So you were in control. You chose when to stop. You chose to hit her where bruises weren't visible. You chose what tactics to use. You knew, you know, um, we had one perpetrator. His victim had just had knee surgery. Where do you think he attacked her? In that knee. Then if you're just wildly swinging out of control, you're not finding a vulnerable body part a foot and a half off the floor. Don't give me this just lost control bit. Doesn't happen to religious people. We spent an hour and a half on that yesterday. I'm not going to belabor that. This is a big one. Someone was running, a gentleman was running for uh, sheriff of Mecklenburg County, which is where Charlotte, North Carolina is located, and said the way to solve domestic violence is to solve all the drug abuse. Once we do that, it goes away. We get that. This is after I lost control. Here's what batters say. 
I work in a county which has one of the highest rates of prescription drug abuse in the country. Everyone seems to be hooked on Xanax and pain pills and all other kinds of things. Most abusers come in with substance abuse issues. And so that's the next excuse. I was drunk, I did all of this and that, and I'd been drinking and I was out with my buddies and then segues into what she did X, Y, and Z. But basically we're trying to say root causes drug and alcohol abuse. Really, Joe, this is a little bit of a crude example, but when they're at this stage, they're pretty stubborn, so we have to really punch through their defenses. Bad analogy, but you get the point. Joe, how much beer and how many pills would it take for you to sleep with your grandmother? They look, everybody's like this. And that's what they're, no, that, because that's, I don't, you have to be a, major sociopath to even think about that without cringing, which most of these guys are not. I would never do that. There's no amount of, uh, you're crazy. Ah, wash out my ears. So Joe, you're saying that no matter how intoxicated you are, there are boundaries you absolutely will not cross. I, 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 they know they've been caught at this point. We're gonna add abusing people to that list. Now, drugs and alcohol can exacerbate. Someone who is verbally abusive sober may escalate to physical violence when intoxicated. Someone who normally slaps may escalate to strangulation when intoxicated. But the root cause of abuse is not substances. Are not substances. Now, there is a high degree of correlation. A lot of abusers do abuse drugs and alcohol. Way bigger than a bread box, but usually the conditions that put someone in a place where they are abusive and acting out on that puts them in a place where they're abusing alcohol and drugs as well. A lot of victims used to self-medicate. You saw that from Katya last night, even within the church, 20% of those victims started drinking. And drinking is a very taboo subject in our church. I'm willing to bet that that number is underreported. That's one thing you just do not admit to. So you've got that. A lot of abusers will get their victims hooked on drugs to exercise power and control. If I'm your supplier and you are chemically addicted to something that I can provide, you're going to stay and you're going to do what you're told. All of these factors, there's a lot of substance abuse in violent households. There are abusers who would never ever consider touching a drink or taking anything stronger than a Tylenol. There are raging alcoholics and heroin addicts who have never abused anybody in their life. And this is adapted from the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. And we see the correlations here between substance abuse and vi domestic violence, isolation, pain. There are mental, emotional, physical, verbal, sexual, and financial effects. Um, failed attempts to stop using. Some abusers want to stop abusing. Not a whole lot of them. Hello. The sign-in sheet. Is everyone signed in? Okay, we're signed in. You're welcome. And can't. A lot of people genuinely... Yeah, someone had to fly out. One never showed up, and the other one's in a committee meeting, and will be back this afternoon. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so even when batters recognize the cycle, if they don't have positive skills, like what Mac talked about yesterday, 
Batter intervention is way too much about don't do this. Well, what do I do? What is a positive relationship without those skills that um, they can't get out of that cycle? Um, lowering self-esteem, failed attempts to stop using, intergenerational cycle. We know that children who grow up in abusive homes or have been abused are more likely to enter into abusive relationships as either perpetrators or victims. Kids learn how to start abusing substances by watching their parents. That's how my alcohol use started at 12 years old, watching my father sitting at the kitchen table with him and his buddies. It was passed down as a legitimate behavior, the same way some domestic violence is. It's a learned behavior. You learn how to do these things. Someone shows you how to do this. Someone models that behavior at some point in your life. Uh, deny and minimize the problem. He didn't hit me or I didn't hit her. It was just a shove. I was not verbally abusing her. I was just upset. The same thing with someone who's abusing um, substances. It's not that bad. I've got it under control. Other people defend that person's behavior, minimize it. Progressive substance abuse, it gets worse and worse and worse. One joint a week becomes two a day, becomes let's move up to heroin, becomes let's start cooking up meth in the kitchen, usually winds up in death or something worse. Um, domestic violence is progressive. Very rarely do you have a nice, healthy relationship and all of a sudden you get punched in the nose. It's not how it works. These other tactics start building up. They get small. You don't even recognize them. Like the whole boiling a frog, put it in cold water and slowly turn up the heat. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger till you wake up and you realize one day, maybe 10, 20 years, 30, or even 40 years down the road, like the woman I worked with in North Carolina, oh wow, I'm being abused. Um, relapse, we know that substance abuse involves that. We know that a woman goes back around, or victim, I should say, around seven times before she breaks away. So you have this relapse of the cycle, and both of these can be fatal. So a lot of people see that there's correlation and think that it's the same thing, and we can make a direct intersection there, and we really can't. So. Curing the violence will not cure the substance abuse. Curing the substance abuse will not cure the violence. When we talk about perpetrators, we're gonna learn these are very different stages of healing. Um, we've been through this, the six manifestations of abuse. Now we're gonna to get to the power and control wheel. Um, you've got one in your uh, packet if you want to take a look at it here. And this was put together, part of the Duluth Project, early 80s. The first time real research was done around what is domestic violence, what are the dynamics of violence. We have learned so much in the 30 years since here, but the fact that this is still a cornerstone of what we know shows how solid it is. We see we have power and control at the middle. That's what it's about. We have all of these different tactics around here broken up into eight different categories. I'm not gonna read every single one of them, but we'll go through the eight categories briefly. And then I have a video from Ellen Pence who helped put this together. I figure why talk when I can find someone who knows more about it than I do? Um, intimidation, those dirty looks. I remember my father, you got a look, you knew it was time to sit down and shut up or fall off the face of the earth. Um, breaking things, I have a video later where I don't think it's that video, but I hear from so many victims, you know, why is it 
when he throws something, it's not something he likes. He manages never to throw his beer bottle at her. It's always grandma's tea set that she really, really values. It's always something that she values. Why is it she has never gone through a plasma TV? Because he likes that TV. She manages to go through the dining room, the china cabinet a lot because he doesn't care about those things. Destroying property, abusing pets. That is a big one. I love my dog so much. Uh, and Dana, people know probably one of the quickest ways you could hurt me other than hurting her is to hurt Shadow. And we do that. <clears throat> Batterers know that. Systematic use of tactics. If she's attached to that pet, he is not afraid to threaten it. He is not afraid to hurt it. He is not afraid to kill it. Um, when I was in Denver, a um, wonderful woman named Olga Trujillo, the abuse she went through both as a child and as an adult in relationship is just beyond horrific. And she talked about when her growing up, her father was very abusive. Every once in a while, a cherished family pet, he would break its neck and leave it on one of their pillows just to show I'm in control. He never said he was going to do that to the children. But if you're a seven-year-old and your puppy has a broken neck on your pillow, you're thinking, am I next? And that's where this part comes in. Even if there is no physical and sexual violence, all of these things are just as effective because you spend your life wondering, is tomorrow the day it gets out to here? So when there's no physical violence, a lot of people say, well, that's not really abuse. There's actually more fear at this point because you're wondering, if you're at this stage, yes, you're afraid for your life, you're afraid for your children, but you're not afraid of the unknown at that point because you know you're there. Here, you don't know. So you've got actually an extra layer of power and control when you're not being physically abusive. Exactly. Um, displaying weapons. I remember a few times coming home and Dad was just always polishing his gun. Never threatened us. There's an implicit message right there. Um, emotional abuse, putting her down, um, making her feel bad or calling names, playing mind games, humiliating her, making her feel guilty. Um, all of those things. You know, if you call me stupid, I can brush that off. I'd say, you know what? I know better. <laughs> I've got the academic credentials to show, show it. But if you tell me that 10 times a day for 10 years, actual physical changes occur in the brain where that is as real to you as the fact that this carpet is reddish orange, whatever it is. I mean, it is real. And then if you feel that you're stupid and you're worthless, why would you try to leave? Nobody wants you. Barrier to exit. Um, isolation. You're not allowed to go to church. You're not allowed to see your family. You're not allowed to see your friends because they might give you ideas that perhaps I'm not right. And again, when we're alone, we become afraid. When we become afraid, it's easier to manipulate. Uh, minimizing, denying, and blaming. Everything is her fault. I have, uh, when I do this in the Carolinas, I have a friend who will sometimes join me. She is a survivor. Her husband was a pastor. The abuse started, they got married, they moved to um, Collegedale near, um, you know, um, where Southern Adventist University is. They're gonna, she's gonna be a pastor's wife, he's gonna be a pastor, we're a happy family, and that's when the abuse started. 
one of the things he did was they had this rug, you know, with the little fringy, frilly things all the way around it. Her job was to make sure all those little fringes were absolutely perfect when he came home. They never were. How do you, if you've got kids, how do you keep the little fringes on the rug absolutely perfect? Not happening. It's an unrealistic demand. That's a common thing batterers do. There's no way it happened. Well, now you deserve this. And if she had gotten that perfect, it would have been something else. And if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. Um, my dad was real big about that one. Um, they were smokers. Um, they had this, we had a pool and all of that. And they had these little um, ashtrays. They were made out of fiberglass, about this big. They were a nice blue color, maybe about the color of the cushions here. Set those out in the sun for um, three years. They start to fade. They get white, chalky. So my job as a nine or 10-year-old was to take a Q-tip and some car wax and wax these ashtrays. One, it's a ridiculous demand anyway, <laughs> period. It's a ridiculous request. Do you really think a nine-year-old's getting an ashtray perfect with a Q-tip? No, I couldn't do it at 37, much less at nine with the attention span of a flea. That was an excuse. The interesting fact about that story is that he was pressured to hear his mother. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so that shows that intergenerational cycle right there. Good point. Um, minimizing, denying, we know how all of that works. Using the children. You spend all your money and time with the children. I'm your husband. That's usually something that happens before sexual abuse. Using the children to relay messages. Carry, especially when you're in the separation or there's really not a lot of communication happening, getting the children to run stories, turning the children against the other partner. Sometimes that's as direct as your mother or your father is XYZ and all of these bad things. Sometimes it's a little more subtle. Lundy Bancroft has a great book, Why Does He Do That? It's obvious what he's talking about. Why does he batter? Tells a lot of stories in there. Typical scenario is, okay, we're going to have a good day. Because batterers will have a good day because they know they've pushed about this far. They're this close to going too far is what I'm trying to say. So now Saturday, Sunday, whatever, family's going to get together. We're getting Joe and Sally and little Jimmy and little Jenny. We're getting in the car and we're going out for pizza and we're going to have a great day. But mom, because she was up all night dealing with dad and some abuse, is slow getting her stuff together. Come on, Sally, let's go. Come on, Sally. The kids are like, hey, we want to go. Well, we have to wait on your mother. You know how she is. 30 minutes later, well, we're not going. Your mother can't seem to get her act together. Kids are disappointed. Kids are heartbroken. Kids now blame mom. Mom was up all night being sexually abused and trying to stop bleeding and everything else so the kids wouldn't see it or scrubbing the kitchen floor where there's some blood and doing all of this, forget all of that. She's now the bad guy in the eyes of the kids. And they see dad, oh, he wanted to take us out for something good. The abuser's the good guy. The abusee is the bad person. And a nine-year-old, 10-year-old mind's not equipped to unravel all of this. And then they're like, Mom, if he's so bad, why don't you just leave? I did that. I had no idea the pain I was causing my mother at that point. It wasn't an option for a lot of reasons we'll go into later. So using the children, huge. Using privilege. I'm the man of the house. I'm the king of the castle. 
just playing upon those social norms. Um, economic abuse, she's not allowed to have a job, she has to beg for money. Okay, you've got $25 this week to feed this family of four. I don't know, what did she plan on feeding them for $25? <laughs> not much. I know. <laughs> Even then, by the time you buy butter and milk, <laughs> that's not going very far. And then, of course, she can't put a good dinner on the table, that kind of money. So now there's an excuse for abuse. That kind of rhymed. So all of these things, even if you're failing at all of these things and you're dealing with all these things over and over and over and over, and you're in fear of physical and sexual violence, let me jump ahead. Why doesn't she leave? She's too busy just trying to survive. You're dealing with all this. You're dealing with raising children. You know, I'll do this tomorrow, tomorrow. Well, at the end of the school year, oh, summer vacation, the in-laws are coming. We have to put on the happy face. Next year becomes next decade. Life gets in the way a lot. And we talked about the cycle of violence. You have um, Claudio and Pamela did such a great job with the clock. This basically says the same thing. You have an incident, making up honeymoon phase. Hey, life is normal, tension building, boom. There's one hole in this model that I don't really like. It's good, but not everything goes around this circle. There's not, if there's no physical violence, there's not always a single thing where you could say, boom, here was the explosion. Our family stayed here for 22 years. So if you look at, it's, it's only a violent relationship if you're going around this circle. It's real easy to take people who are stuck here, or even people who are here for two years at a time, and say, well, that's not abuse. Let's move on. It's a great model to get a picture of the typical relationship, but one of the things you're going to hear me say 9,000 times the rest of this day is we cannot take one model, one theory, one idea, and apply it to these 28 million victims in America. You can't do it. Everyone's different. So now we have a quick video. This is Ellen Pence. I was so looking forward to her seeing her speak in person this August. She passed away about a month and a half ago from breast cancer. She is one of the co-creators of the Power and Control Wheel. A few interesting, there's a lot of interesting points there, some of which we covered. Okay, get back into the camera picture. One thing I wanted to bring out to springboard to the next part, and feel free to tell me when you guys are ready for a break. I'll try to schedule one every 45 minutes or so, but I can get going downhill and not stop, so. Anybody, feel free to say, stop. The entitlement. Right, most men do not enter into this, men do not enter into this world automatically thinking, hey, I'm entitled to be in charge. That's a learned behavior. That comes, well, directly from witnessing abuse, but there are a lot of abusers and a lot of abusees who did not witness this stuff in the home. What is building this sense of entitlement? And like Ellen was saying, it's not even conscious. It's not that I think, well, I'm a man, I'm entitled. Sometimes it's that way. But most of it's just so deeply ingrained in the culture that I don't even realize that I have this sense of entitlement. And that,
lost the clicker, dropped the mic. All right, culture, a culture, a culturization. Basically, indoctrinating people into the way that it is. Let's talk about culture. Let's talk about how this country was founded in relation to violence against women. Of course, country founded by European settlers for the most part. We'll skip the genocide of the native people. Um, not that that's not an important, it's just a separate topic. Our legal system, which is still broken in a lot of ways, which still incorporates a lot of these principles, even with the Violence Against Women Act and everything else. English common law, that was the basis for the American legal system. And common law in England in the 1500s allowed and encouraged wife beating. Part of the culture, part of the legal system. We tend to think, well, it's the law that makes it right and wrong. So when the law is saying this, again, that's just another way we indoctrinate people into believing what is right and wrong. And so that was our culture. 1824, you've heard the phrase, you know, the, here's the rule of thumb. There was a legal case in um, Mississippi in 1824 that said it's only lawful to beat your wife if you use a switch smaller than your thumb. Yeah. Yeah, so you can only beat your wife with something. Yeah. Which is still ridiculous. But they thought they were progressive. Hey, we've taken away, I guess there weren't baseball bats then, but we've taken away tree branches and table lamps and everything else. Um, 1857, there's a court case in Massachusetts that says, and the verdict is you cannot be charged with raping your wife. She is your property. You can do whatever you want. You are married. That is her job. And I'm sure the judge threw some Bible verses way out of context in there and everything else. So now... Women have no legal recourse. Precedence, a huge part of our judicial system. Something egregious has to happen for you to overturn another court's decision. Precedence, that's the word I'm looking for. 1857, the ASPCA is formed. There are no groups to protect children. There are no groups dedicated to the welfare of women. We love Fido more than Franny. That is the message right there. Take care of your pets. Let's not be cruel to the animals, but just beat your wife in a civilized manner. That's where we're at in the mid-1800s. Alabama makes wife beating illegal, 1871. Not the bastion of progressive freedom and politics at this point, but they went first. Important object lesson. Stereotypes, assumptions. Massachusetts soon follows. Those are two states that are polar opposites sociopolitically. But at least they came together at this point. 1874, great state of North Carolina says the rule of thumb is ridiculous. Woohoo! We're making progress, but as long as the violence is out of the public eye, it's permissible. There's a long quote that I don't have up here from the judge where he rambles on and pontificates, but that's the core of the story. Look, we just don't want to see it. Leave it in the house. Don't do it in the public square. 
1964, the first program to work with batterers opens in California. We still do not have our first women's shelter. We do not have a group devoted to the welfare of victims, regardless of gender or age. Fido is important. Frank is important. Franny, not so much. 1966, New York makes beatings grounds for divorce, but there must be a sufficient number. No one articulated the sufficient number. I infer from sufficient number that it's more than one. I mean, when you read that statement, you can infer that. Two, seven, ten, I don't know. So now it's open for interpretation. If you get a judge who say is abusing his wife, statistically, one in five or six are, I'm guarantee you he's going to set that number pretty ridiculously high. 1966, female judges, very, very, very small minority, still are. Um, people of color, nowhere in, near the legal system, so you still have institutionalized bias, and you still do to this day. In Batterer's group, almost everyone is a Caucasian. And we asked them, why are there not people of color here? And even they know, well, white people get sent to group or probation, people of color get sent to jail. That's just the way that it is. So we still have a lot of work to do, which is why I spend a lot of time talking about culture, because the way we're really going to overcome this, we have to change the culture. So 1967, Maine opens the first domestic violence shelter. Three years after we decide the poor batterers need help, someone comes up with the bright idea that poor victims need help. 1980 to 1993, 1993, not 1893. States pass laws against spousal rape. North Carolina is the last one in 1993. I graduated high school in 1992. The day I graduated high school, if I had been married, I could not be charged with raping my wife. No matter what violent, disgusting things I did, when and where, maybe if it was in public, I could get charged with indecent exposure. That's ridiculous. <laughs> 1994, now then Senator, now Vice President Joe Biden helps push through the Violence Against Women Act. A lot of great stuff there, led to a lot of legal reforms, poured a lot of money into shelters, education for judges and prosecutors and police officers. A lot of lives have been saved. Obviously, we need more because that one in four number is the same, but less women. We actually had a reduction in deaths, and now they're starting to come back up, which is scary. Yeah. Yeah, that's a completely different discussion about whether or not the domestic violence movement is a movement or is it just another nonprofit cottage industry. Way bigger than a bread box. That's one of those things I'll have to take offline. 2000, awareness grows. Even my mom said, you know, right around 1999, there was all these Lifetime and Hallmark movies about domestic violence. So we, we got to the point we were willing to start having the conversation, at least in small pockets of our society and some awareness, but those abuse statistics are stuck at one in four. It comes back to one word, culture. We can help victims. We can even help perpetrators. But as long as our culture keeps indoctrinating new victims and new perpetrators, that number is going to sit there forever.
So we're at to the point that we're at the point now in 2012. Almost all states have dedicated domestic violence court. A lot of the judges still are clueless, and so are a lot of the prosecutors. I don't know if this is where I tell the story later. I almost got arrested at domestic violence court in um, South Carolina. Um, the judge, um, I'll tell that story later, but there's still, even though it's, there are laws, there's education, cannot be, you know, it's actually in North Carolina, there's not a law against domestic violence. There's assault on a female, but so there's still a lot of catching up to do, but for the most part, you cannot legally abuse someone. A couple of prof holes with that. One, obviously enforcement. If the law is not being enforced, if the officers and the judiciary have no idea about the dynamics of domestic violence, the law is useless. Two, how do you make emotional abuse against the law? You can't. You could process, you could see a black eye and you can prosecute that. So to sit here and say the legal system is the answer, it's a small part of the answer. It's a vital part of the answer. But again, there's more we've got to look at. It's another video. Without launching into too much explanation, we know from oppression, whether it's been having trouble again, whether it's been of people of color, whether it's been of Jews, whether it's been any group of oppression, the first thing that happens is objectification. When you make someone less than human, violence naturally follows. And this starts to um, set the groundwork for our discussion about that. I'm a simple kind of guy. You know, I like reducing concepts to two words. We've got power and control. We're going to talk about safety and empowerment later. But there are two words that she said right off the bat, shame and guilt. That's what all of this does. Like she said, this does not directly cause violence. You do not, I do not see one of those ads that suddenly want to punch Dana. But when we're inundated with this everywhere, and you can't avoid it. We want to raise our children, and we want to live in a world where we don't see these things. But when they're plastered on billboards, on the sides of the city buses, you can't. You want to watch the news to just check the weather, and you get one of these ads of a woman draped across a car or something. You, we can't avoid it as much as we would like to. So if I am ashamed and I feel guilty, I am now 22 years old. I know that I will never be what society wants me to be. I am a failure. Do I not suddenly start to believe him when he says you deserve to be abused because you're a failure, you're a loser? He, half the work's already been done for him. She's already broken mentally, spiritually. And the violence naturally follows. That's why I spend a lot of time on culture. Two other points. Beer and video games, those two jumped out. Video games, what are they? Mindless entertainment. You play, you mash the buttons. Whenever you're through having fun, you turn it off and maybe put it away for the next five years until you're ready to play again. Men and boys are hearing, that's what women are. When you want to play with them, you know, plug them in and play, and when you're having fun, put them away. 
And I don't know about you, but most kids play a video game for a while. They get tired of it. They trade it in on a new one. I'm bored with this one. I want a different one. I want the newest, the latest, and we wonder why 40-year-old men are running off with cocktail waitresses and secretaries. Because the culture says when you get bored, get something newer, get something younger, get the latest toy and the latest gadget. And they've already taught that women are toys and gadgets. Beer, you know, it's just something that's designed to make me feel good. Whenever I need a pick-me-up, whenever I want whatever beer is providing me or any other alcohol, women are used a lot in alcohol ads, I take this. Women are turned into a drug, something, again, that exists solely to make me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> and when you look at it, products that are marketed towards women, makeup, all of these clothes, sexy women, women are indoctrinated to believe that this is the ideal. So part of the culture that this is what women are, even they start to buy into it. And when everybody's on the same page that women are second class citizens, as she said, violence will follow because we are sinful, depraved, selfish human beings by nature. Here's some ads. Keep her where she belongs. Um, late 50s, early 60s. We expect this then, so it's not shocking, but then it was really normal. Yeah, let, let, let's play max exercise here, where you look at the picture and really look at it. Tell me what you see. Okay, you've got that. Yeah, definitely the shoes. She's at his feet. Anything else jump out at you? There you go. You're the first person to pick up on that. I didn't even pick up on it. I had shown this picture 25 times, and Dana jumps up and says, wait a minute, did you ever notice that she's naked? She's obviously not getting ready to take a shower. There's another message right there. Women be at a man's feet, ready to serve him sexually. Exactly. Yeah, that's the message. You will be happy when you fit this mold. The same way about marketing the clothes and the makeup and the jewelry to women, you will be happy when you fit this impossible mold. If that one wasn't direct enough, now we can go to this one. Um, Mr. Legs, now legs makes, you know, hosiery and things like that. Then they made polyester slacks. It's nice to have a girl around the house. Though she was a tiger lady, our hero didn't have to fire a shot to floor her. After one look at his Mr. Legs slack, she was ready to have him walk all over her. That noble styling sure soothes the savage heart. If you'd like your own doll, your own, um, I can't really see that, to floor, yeah, doll to doll carpeting instead of wall to wall, it's doll to doll carpeting. Hunt up a pair of these mean Mr. Leg slacks, such as our new automatic wash and wear Dacron and Rayon, and that's when all of those. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, we're looking at early to mid 60s. Tiger lady, we have, uh, she's expected to be sexually, you know, sexual predator and all of these things, but a lady on the street now, because women have to be both. That's another societal message. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just so obvious we don't really need to go into it. And they, they've spelled it out. This is not, hey, let's slip this message in. Let's hit you over the head with this message. And it's, it's in, you know, Good Housekeeping magazine and all of these other magazines. So that's a good, you know, the Good Housekeeping seal of approval. That means something's good and wholesome and great for my kids. You see it in a place like that. Eh, it's normal. Now let's just go ahead and get straight to the violence. Let's stop insinuating it. If your husband ever finds out you're not store testing for fresher coffee, if he discovers you're still taking chances on getting flat, stale coffee, woe be unto you. For today, there's a sure and certain way to test for freshness before you buy. And we wonder why men nowadays say, if you had cooked the meal right, if you hadn't made the coffee too strong, I wouldn't have had to hit you. He did not dream that up by himself. He was explicitly told, hey, this is normal. And this is not marketed at the man. Read the top copy. If your husband ever finds out, women, if you do not get it right in the kitchen, you deserve this. Yeah, this is jump through this hoop to avoid pain. Very negative, whereas the first one we saw at the feet, if you do this, you'll be happy. This one, if you do this, obviously, woe unto you. But it's 2011, 12. This is my first time doing this presentation this year, so I have not updated said slide. It's 2012 now. Oh, and this is even better. If we had changed by 2011, we've certainly made some progress in the last year, right? Those things, uh, those ads I pulled off of a site that basically talked about how broken our culture was in the 60s and before about violence against women and women as second class citizens, you know, pre-70s feminism and uh, late 60s civil rights and all of that. We're an evolved society. We send our military all the world, all, all over the world to bring peace and democracy and the American way to the world. Obviously, we have our act together, right? Not so much. Wrangler Jeans, household name. I've been kind enough to censor that part. We are animals, Wrangler. There's about 25 different variations of this. We have a woman, half undressed, well, three quarters, because her pants are down to mid-hip, face down dead in a swamp. I've been doing this for a while. I still can't figure out who we is. Women, are you the animals? One could read that ad that way. Are we marketing to men? We are animals and we wear Wrangler jeans and we're tough guys and now we get to dominate the world because we're manly men. We are animals. I don't know. Amazing how they play both sides of the coin at the same time. And like I said, there's half a dozen, oh, actually there's about two dozen variations on this. Um, you can imagine what that five-letter word is. 
um, skateboards. I'm 37 years old and I'm a grad school student. I'm not buying skateboards. I doubt anybody here at this table fits the demographics of a skateboard buyer. Who buys skateboards? Teenage boys, exactly. We now know our target market. That is the universal symbol for a man. That's the universal symbol for a woman. That's a gun, that is smoke. He has obviously just shot her in the head. I had a skateboard. Well, I had two, one of them got stolen when I was a uh, teenager. But shooting a woman in the head never occurred to me to tie that together. Skateboards are fun. And you know the skateboard culture, I'm not saying kids at skateboard are bad kids, but there is a subculture associated with it. You know, I'm free, I'm a rebel, I'm doing my own thing, I, you know. I'm expressing myself in my own way. You're just expressing yourself in your own way there. Now available, but, but truth in advertising. Now available from Madman Distribution. <laughs> Self-awareness, okay, we've gotten to step one. And everybody talks about how progressive California is. This is El Segundo, California. Oh, yeah, they're so progressive and all that, except for the shooting women in the head thing. Yeah. Now we're taking this message we down the age scale. This is one, you'll actually see this in a video later. Duncan Quinn, um, European suit manufacturer. I think there's only three stores in America where you can get them. Um, probably costs more than any of our automobiles. Okay, we've got man, powerful, confident, in her underwear. Got to have a car because that's obligatory because cars are about manliness and powerful and all of this. Um, looks like a convertible. Looks like a Jaguar, I think. Again, there's another layer there. He has taken off his necktie and he has strangled her to death. I don't know what that has to do with very expensive suits. If you put on the suit, if you have money, what does money equal in today's society? Power. So you buy the expensive suit, you get the nice convertible, you become the stereotype of what a successful, powerful male is. You now have power, you now have the right of course, we've got sexual objectification, sex, and disposal. I'm tired of this toy, so I'm going to get rid of it. You can't see these messages thousands of times without being changed. You just can't. Dolce & Gabbana, marketed towards upper middle class. A lot of, I see a lot of upper middle class teens and young people who Mommy and daddy's buying this stuff for them. That's really who the target market is. Upper middle class, 18 to 35, that core demographic, as advertisers call it. Um, we've got a lot of things happening here, obviously. We've got a gang, not a stereotypical gang, but five guys who are getting together to wreak havoc is called a gang. She's being held down while she is not, while they are, all have their um, genitalia covered. Obviously, we have a gang rape getting ready to happen. And that's what advertisers call this, is the gang rape ad. And it is recognized as one of the most successful ads in history. And I saw this on a billboard coming south out of Virginia on I-95 into North Carolina. 
on a billboard. Now, I'm not talking cable TV at 11 o'clock at night. I'm not talking magazines that you have to ask for behind the counter and show ID. I'm talking on a public highway paid for our tax dollars. And I am not kidding you. True story. It was about a mile after the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church welcomes you to North Carolina sign. It's like, whoa, which sign is going to dominate us? Which one are you going to remember? The Seventh-day Adventist sign or are you going to remember this? Obviously. Something I want to bring out. Let's talk about her body posture. I don't see resistance there. I see a woman who is ready and thrusting upwards towards what's about to happen. Not only are women sex objects, they want to be taken. To be a manly man and turn on a woman, you have to be the alpha male and take control. Nothing wrong with confidence in a healthy relationship, but that's not a healthy relationship, obviously. All kinds of power and control, five on one, she's being held down. And someone brought up this question about a year ago. Fine, guys are indoctrinated to believe this is normal, so they're doing the ad, they're making money. Why would she do something like that? There is the money factor, we don't know. Um, like Max said, if using imagination, maybe she just desperately needs the money. She has a daughter or a sister that really needs a kidney transplant. I don't know. Somehow, I put that as the slightly smaller possibility. Exactly. She thinks this is normal behavior. This is what women do. We wonder why rape is so underreported. We wonder why women feel guilt and shame when they are raped. And we wonder why, as a society, we blame women when they're raped. Why were you dressed like that? Why did you go there at night? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? A comedian put it this way. It's about as stupid as saying, what was Pearl Harbor doing out in the middle of the ocean all by itself when it was attacked by Japan? That is a ridiculous statement. We lay that same statement on women. We condition men to do this. We condition women to say this is normal. And when it happens, it's her fault. Every campus, every college campus, including our own in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we get the women together. We say sexual assault prevention tips, you know, buddy system, park a car under the lights, you know, check under and around your car, all of these things. We have yet to have a group anywhere to tell men, here's the 10 steps to stop rape. Take a buddy with you so you don't rape anybody. If you see an open window, try not to crawl into it and rape anybody. Instead, we tell the women, don't open your window to let fresh air in. Victim blaming. Tell them they should be victims and then blame them. Who's going to come forward in that kind of environment? The conversation gets squelched. And therefore, the average citizen thinks it's really a non-issue. We believe that what sexual assault is is the Central Park jogger, guy in a ski mask, jumps out and drags you off into the bushes when we know that's not how the majority of it happens. So we've got our young people who are seeing this from this high. We have sexy lingerie that are now, is now marketed to six-year-olds. Dana was talking about this. We're thinking about going to Legoland tomorrow, if I'm not too wore out from this. I grew up loving Legos. I was encouraged to play with Legos. I did all kinds of things with Legos. Dana wanted Legos as a child. She was told that's a boy's toy. Here's your little kitchenette. 
And she had the whole kitchen made and, you know, learned how to be the good housewife. While I was 15 minutes away being taught how to be a good thinking, creative engineering type. My mom stayed at home. My brother had uh, severe cerebral palsy. She couldn't work even if she was allowed to. So I hung out with mom. Dad did provide, which he thought covered up any other abuse. Hey, I'm a good provider. But that's beside the point. So I, I was culturated by mom. We went grocery shopping together. I wanted the little Fisher Price shopping cart because that's the parental role model I saw. I didn't see anything wrong with guys going to the grocery store. And I know I wasn't allowed to have that. That's women's work. And, you, you know, you'll wind up a homosexual and all of the stupid things we put into people's heads. We do. We say things like that. And then, okay, now we've got sexism. We get homophobia in there as well. I'm not being a pro-homosexual lifestyle here, but no one deserves to be abused regardless of that. So our children are indoctrinated. What happens? What's the next step with them? Children are getting it from every angle. They're getting it from media. They're getting, we're going to talk some more about music and things like that. We're going to break here in just a second. They're seeing it at home. Society's telling me this is normal. Mommy and daddy are modeling that this is normal. Not saying mom wants to be modeling it and not saying that women are always victims. But, and we know these children grow up to be violent and are raising the next generation who grow up in the same thing and on and on for the last 6,000 years. So that's why I spent a lot of time on this. Um, let's take a break and I don't know, five, 10 minutes. We've got some wiggle room in the schedule. And then we will continue. We'll finish up the culture piece and the effect on youth. Um, one more little video. And by then it may be time for another break. And then we'll talk about working with victims now that we've got enough background information on the problem. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.